Howdy folks, today we're chatting with one of the most creative minds in the photography industry, the very man who has given us some of the most revolutionary camera accessories available today, right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time. In fact, it was 209,233 seconds in 2023 alone. And if you're wondering how I know that, well, I calculated it. Oh yeah, I did. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nuts. And before we get into it, I've got one last thing to ask of you. I've noticed that over 65% of our viewers on YouTube and listeners on audio are not subscribed to this channel you can really help us out by hitting that subscribe button. It'll help us get even more amazing guests on the show in the future. Just one click, it'll take one second. Thank you so much. Now, without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, all the way from New Jersey, the man behind the platypot, platyball, and all things extraordinaire. Give it up for Mr. Dr. T, Larry Tiefenbrunn. Larry, how's things, man? <laughs> Glorious New Jersey, where a man is identified by his exit. Anyhow, <laughs> off the Jersey Turnpike. Anyhow, it's great to be back. I don't know if you remember, it's been a few years, but I was once on the yeah. Camera Shake podcast before, and it's good to be back. And, you know, Kirsten, thank you for working with us at Platypod and doing your amazing episodes on the Platypod channel. And I'm happy and proud to be a supporter of the Camera Shake podcast as well. Well, and I'm very grateful for that. Of course, you know, the, the podcast has been sponsored by Platypod for a good while now, which is um, which is amazing because it allows us to do a number of things that, you know, I just wasn't able to do beforehand. So, you know, that's that's fantastic. And it just it just helps the podcast to reach new heights, basically. You know, so everything is... And you're doing a smashing job, right? Smashing, you uh, say that across the pond, right? Oh, yes, smashing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned New Jersey being... Uh, you know, being where, where a man is known for exiting. Because everybody seems to be, you know, seems to be moving down to Oklahoma. So I've heard. <laughs> Recently, apparently, people only, only move to Oklahoma when they follow somebody else or something <laughs> like that. But I had a guest I had a guest on from Oklahoma um, the other day. Our uh, Pemps took sure. a fantastic catch-up photographer. So, so yeah. Um, Larry, it's, been, it's fantastic to have you back on the show. I was actually thinking this morning, I was thinking like, how long ago was it? And it was about two years because we met at the really? photography show in Birmingham in September or October 20. Oh, it was before it was before that. I think you had a partner on on the show with you at that time. I think it was even it's, earlier. Yeah, yeah, so it was it was before that. So that's, you know, that's like a year and a half ago. So it's at least 2 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot has happened since then. A lot of new products have uh, have emerged. And of course, we're going to talk about those um, a little bit, but we're also really going to talk about your photography. That's like the main the main topic for today, because people know you as Dr. T, they know you as, you know, the face of, of Platypod, of course. But I want to dive a little bit into your photography and, you know, your background as a photographer. Um, as well. Thank you. I hope your viewers will stick around because I'd love to, you know me, I, I like to give tips and tricks. Look, I've, I've been doing this for over 50 years now. And, uh, you know, my main role is as a physician, but photography has been my passion since I was a young teenager. And I've picked up a few tips. So we'll hopefully get to share a few things with the with your viewers as we go through uh, through our discussion. 
Exactly. And, you know, the, I mean, the, the depth and breadth of your wisdom is, is really, I think, you know, it's immense because I know that when, when we have conversations, you know, once in a while we talk about a new video project or something, you know, you might come up with a suggestion that I actually, I either find really helpful because it's, you know, it's usually good as gold. So I'm always waiting for these suggestions, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how often, um, the tools that, that you create with Platypod have come in handy and have actually aided me to create imagery. In fact, you know, only last night, um, Cara, my 12-year-old uh, daughter, and, and I went into London to create some uh, time lapses of, you know, well-known London landmarks, I would say. Um, and it's actually more difficult than you think because in a lot of places, you're not allowed to put tripods up. So you're going to have to come up with other solutions. And it's not necessarily always as straightforward as you think. So again, you know, uh, being able to use tools like, you know, like the Platypod um, and, you know, the handle and of course the new grip that we're going to be talking about today uh, have, have really made all the difference. Well, Kirsten, it's no coincidence that Platypod products are so useful because we have a very different business model. Uh, we're a small mom and pop company. And whereas many other companies are so concerned when developing a product, concerned about, uh, about non-disclosure agreements, that uh, nobody else should come out with their products first. Our products are so wacky, I'm not worried about other people coming out with them first because they don't want to take the risk. But the way our product development occurs is first, I think to myself, do I need this product? Is this something that will solve problems for me and then my next step is to confer with some very close friends who are top photographers in the industry who are not yes people. They are no people. <laughs> they are people who will take my ideas and usually trash them immediately. And if they do, so be it. That's gone. But if they don't, they'll help me adjust the ideas. And then we vet it out to several photographers to try to enhance. And you'll see how that occurred with our latest product. And I think we end up with something that is very useful to many people. And then my next business model is whatever we make, I want to make with quality, not cheap materials, not poorly built, something that's built to last, generally to be lifetime tools. And that really comes through in the process, and, you know, especially in the, in the grip, which again, we're going to be talking about in a second. I'll just give you one example, actually. It's a very simple example. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, a problem that you might not necessarily think about before you're there and you're trying to get the shot. A good example. So, you know, my daughter and I went, went to London yesterday. We wanted to get a shot of the London night, actually something that you mentioned uh, in a conversation that we had on the phone not too long ago. And I thought it was a great, great idea. So, uh, so we went to the embankment, which is basically right by the river. And again, you're not allowed to use tripods there. So, of course, I came equipped with a platypod. Um, and, but the, the problem is, is that the landing itself uh, has a curved top. So you can't actually put anything flat on the top because it will just fall off into the river, which, you know, <laughs> you want to, you would try to avoid that. Um, but, you know, thanks to, um, thanks to the spikes and the fact that you can adjust them, um, you can, you can quite easily create a really stable platform. Um, there's absolutely no chance of anything slipping off or, you know, falling into the river or anything like that. So again, you know, it's a very simple thing, something that you can't really um, plan for in a sense. You know, it's just a problem that just arises. I mean, like we all know as photographers, you're on set, you're on location, something's going to happen that you haven't been able to plan for. 
it's, it happens all the time. And just uh, absolutely, able- absolutely. And I'll I'll give you an example of something like that. And this was uh, this was shown to me by my friend Shiv Verma, who did this by the river in uh, Boston, where he came across a stanchion that had. Let me describe this for your audio viewers. Basically, the curvature at the top was about the arc of a bling ball. And he needed to be able to put a platypod onto there. So I'll show this uh, for the video viewers. I'll try to describe it for your audio audience. Should we call the video audience the vidience? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. But we, we are able to open the spikes on a platypod extreme, which has hinged spikes. You can open them all with an inner, a pointing inner, uh, inward, okay, so to speak. And then that would allow you to go onto a curved surface. Imagine sitting this on a basketball or a bowling ball, and it will maintain grip sturdily even on such a surface. So certainly when you have a curved railing, again, point all the spikes inward, and you can place this right on top of the railing and have a stable a tripod uh, to use. Yeah, and then the other thing is, of course, because because each one of those spikes is, is individually adjustable, you can actually make sure that you get a level platform as well. If you know, Correct. The, as it was the case um, yesterday, for instance, if the surface itself is not very even either, so you know you've got the you've got the option of of actually adjusting each spike so that you know you can create a stable platform so you get grip on on each one of the four spikes, which again is. You know, it is extremely useful. And those spikes are those spikes are sharp. Some people have said to me that they're too sharp. Uh, in fact, our friend Dave Williams once had his platypod perched on a 45 degree angled ice wall and kind of dug the spikes into the ice and it held. And he put a heavy camera on there and was able to position that and then take a self-portrait. Uh, of him standing at the opening of the uh, ice cave. It was a very interesting photo. Yeah, and of course, you know, if you if you're on a surface, somewhat slippery surface, you can actually flip them around. That you've got a rubbery foot, you know, bit on there, which will then help you to actually get more grip. So all around, you know, whichever way you use them, it's extremely useful. Um, and again, you know, and then of course, there are occasions uh, where you could strap the whole thing down to like a, a banister or something like that, you know, right. or a tree, for example. So that's 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 very useful. I mean, you could even the screw holes in it. So you didn't screw it to. I know. Uh, talking about Dave. I remember when um, uh, when I was when I was in his van, he actually had a platypod screwed into the ceiling, into the roof of the van, um, so that he could attach things like GoPros and microphones or whatever, you know, directly to to the platypod in the ceiling. Again, that's a throwback to Ansel Adams, who used to mount an eight by ten camera on top of a station wagon. Uh, he was using a full size wooden tripod on top of there, and he would take images in Yellowstone uh, National Park using that 8x10 camera. He didn't shoot 5,000 photos like we do today. It was one photo, and that was it, basically. I know, and I've also seen uh, some behind-the-scenes you know, footage, basically, of him dragging that all the way up onto some of the peaks in Yosemite. Right. And you may right. think that, well, first of all, that camera must have weighed a ton, but that tripod in itself looks like it's the weight of like a small car or something. <laughs> oh, he definitely would have enjoyed the platypod and so <laughs> For sure, I know, right? Um, cool. So I t- let's let's talk about the the latest uh, platypod invention, uh, which is known as the grip. Um, and I'm just gonna 
I'm just going to hold it out because I've got it actually mounted on a on a uh, on a handle here. I don't know if you can see that, but basically, this is essentially a phone grip, you know. And of course, phone grips have been around um, for a while. This one is somewhat different, though. Larry, how did you what what made you redesign the phone grip in itself, and how did you come up with these with with this solution? Well, th this came out of necessity. For years, we were selling as an accessory a product made by another company called Square Jellyfish. And they had a very nice little phone grip. It was basically a vertical metal stem, a knob on the top, which connected to a set of um, springs that, that would uh, clamp onto a camera. It all folded up nice and compact. It didn't have any kind of a ball head function to it. You had to have a separate ball head for it. Um, and it mounted with a quarter inch socket at the bottom of that uh, of that item. I went to place an order last year for the uh, for the square jellyfish to replenish our stock. And I was informed that they were discontinuing that model and they were only going to continue to make some plastic models that they had. Well, that's not something that I really wanted to push. As I've said, our items are all, all built to be long lasting and sturdy. So we tried other products, about a half a dozen of them, and none of them ticked off all the boxes. None of them really satisfied all our requirements. So again, I got together with my team of advisors and we picked out the features of several different phone mounts that we liked and put them all together into one unique item. And these are custom made for us. So one thing I insisted on is I wanted a ball head function in this because I felt it's everybody's going to need to adjust the leveling a little bit for their, uh, for their camera. So I borrowed an idea from another one of our products called the Platypod Elbow, which has three different joints in it and allows you to position items in many ways. And basically we just took one joint and for the, uh, video audience who I think can watch this on YouTube, you can see this is essentially the stem that's being used. And it has a large metal knob on it, which is glove operable even in the winter. And that locks a little ball joint at the top. And to that ball joint, we then add on our jaws, I would call them. Now, when this ships, it's taken apart in two pieces. So these actually snap together for easy transport. You take it off, you just thread it onto the quarter inch stud at the top, spin it into place. And now you have essentially a vertical stem. It's about three, three and a half inches tall, which has a ball joint at the top. So now I can fully adjust the position of my phone and then lock everything with one very sturdy lock that's actually attaching to the ball joint by a steel rod that goes through the center of this stem so that really you can tighten this as tight as you want you're really not going to break anything the jaws expand to 105 millimeters i believe an iphone max with an otterbox case 
uh, it goes to about 95 millimeters. So this will essentially accommodate any smartphone. And again, for the video audience, I'll show, I'm just attaching a smartphone onto here. Very easy, you just pull a spring and it locks into place. The other thing that is unique is we wanted several mounting options on the, uh, on the grip. And we have three different options. Again, for the uh, video audience, I'll show it. For the audio audience, we'll try to describe it well. And as you can see on the bottom here, there is a 3 8 inch socket so that you can attach this directly to the bolt on a platypod. There's also two quarter inch sockets so that if you want to place it on a smaller device, such as perhaps the platypod elbow, and this has come in handy in several situations, you can attach it either closer to the knob or further to the knob with those, um, with those quarter inch sockets. The third option is the base plate of this is essentially an Arca plate. So if I want to attach this directly to a ball head to give me more options for panning and for, let's say, angling upward, I can do that here too. So the, uh, the ball joint here will allow you to angle in one direction, but if you want to go back and, let's say, look up at the sky, either you have to turn your camera around, which you could do, or you would use a ball head to perform that function. So now we're really able to mount any way that any photographer would want. I don't know if you have any questions on that, Kirsten. Well, hey, another thing that's, that's super useful with this, there's actually just, there's a whole array of, of uh, additional options there. But first of all, there's a number of mounts in there that allow you to, to connect some other things to it. Um, but one of the things that that's I That's true. We didn't mention the, mention the cold shoe adapters. There's two of those yes. on here, too. Exactly. So there's two cold shoe adapters. That. So there's two cultural uh, adapters that you can you know uh, connect either an LED light to or a microphone, for example. So especially if you're using an external mic, you know, with your let's say you're recording with a phone, um, that can be very useful. Um, and also, of course, the grip is so sturdy that it works. It works not only to hold your smartphone, but you could also hold like a, a small LED panel, for example, which I frequently do actually when I'm doing you know when I'm doing uh, videos and stuff. Um, you so could do it really well, actually. <laughs> Kirsten, you can even, we've, we've done this, we've rated this to five pounds. We've put an entire DSLR camera with a heavy lens directly on the quarter inch stud if you just take the jaws off. So this can double as a, as a ball head in a pinch. I mean, we don't really market it much like that, but yes, it would work for that as well. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I really love about this also is the fact that you can take the, um, the jaws and unscrew them from the base of the grip and then connect the jaws themselves uh, to an elbow, for example, which again comes That's in correct. super handy when you're doing, especially when you're doing some top-down stuff, some tabletop um, things. You know, like um, uh, for for those for those of you for those listeners and viewers who are um, following the Platypod channel, um, what I recommend is you head over to the Platypod YouTube channel and have a look at some of the tutorial videos uh, that we produce um, over there. And Plus, they're made by Kirsten Lutz, and they're amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity. With their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. 
As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypus' incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypus products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home, in the studio, and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. Depending on what it is, what kind of photography that I that I make in any given tutorial, this might be scale model photography, or it might be um, it might be top down photography, or it might be you know um, what did we do recently? We did oil and water photography, so some abstract stuff. Um, it is really you know the combination of all those tools really makes things possible uh, possible in a really easy way. Uh, that would have well, otherwise... we, adopted, we adopted a very simple we adopted a very simple concept. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your words, but a very simple concept. There really are only two types of bolts used in photography. And if you look this up, uh, international standards for photographic bolts, you will see that there are two sizes. The one size is the three eighth inch bolt, which you can see on our platypod plate. The other size is a one quarter inch bolt, which is on many other devices, and that's the socket at the bottom of almost any camera. So not only do all Platypod products work with all other Platypod products, they also work with almost anything in the photographic world because we are only using those standard sizes, which makes it, you know, I think, universally adaptable. Exactly. And even in audio, I mean, I use, um, I use a handle and a Platypod frequently to mount microphones. You know, again, same. It's it's the same kind of uh, microphones have one more size. I think it's five eight five eighth inch for the base of microphones. Right. Yeah. Yes. So they, you might need usually, an adapter for that, but it can be done. That's right. But they usually come with an adapter because a lot of the a lot of mic stands use the small adapter. So, um, so they they would typically you know fit onto a mic stand. So if if your mic fits on a on a normal regular microphone stand, they'll fit on a on a on a handle. So, um, again, it's a super useful super useful thing. For so many different applications. In fact, if I could zoom out, you can't see it, Robert. But if you know, if I were able to, to zoom out, you'd find all sorts of different um, platypod things around me, holding up LED lights and other things. Yeah, yeah zoom out, zoom out. Let's leave. <laughs> I, I can't. Unfortunately, I can't. But um, yeah, so there's uh, there would normally be LED light above me as a hair light, which is not on today for some reason. But um, and, you know, all sorts of different things. So it's um, so a very very useful thing. Um, what inspired you originally to to set up a company and to make things yourself? How did you get this? Was my, it's a good question. This was never my life plan. Again, my my main job is I am a physician. I'm a, a pediatrician, uh, but as a photographer, really, I stumbled into this. Uh, my wife and I. I think I've told this story before. My wife and I were on a trip in Bryce Canyon, and we walked down a thousand feet into the canyon. And I was carrying my uh, my travel tripod with me at that time. I think it was a Manfrotto tripod, which weighed five or six pounds. 
I had it hooked onto a, a belt, and that was all fine. And we did some some nice self portraits there, and some you know beautiful, steady, sharp images. And then came the march back up from the bottom of the canyon. And I discovered shortly after that that I had a hard condition. I ended up with a stent, but. We had to stop, you know, several points along the way just to rest because it was too much. So when I came back home, I said, you know what? I've got to find a better option. Uh, I owned one of those twisty bendy tripods. I'm not going to say the name. And uh, I was not happy with them, A, because after a few months of use, they would weaken. And if you had a heavy uh, camera and lens, they would just keel over. That was problem number one. Number two is when you would scrunch it together and put it in your camera bag, it would take up practically the size of a full-length telephoto, you know, 70 to 200 millimeter lens. And I don't know about other people, but to me, every cubic inch of my camera bag is precious. And I want to have my most essential equipment in there. I didn't want to take it up with that kind of space. So I started looking for a flat tripod base so I could put a ball head on it and, you know, mount it somewhere. And I looked through catalogs, I looked through B&H Photos uh, website, and I found about 250 different tabletop tripods, but they were almost all for very light use, and none of them were flat so that I could slip it into the pocket of my camera bag without it taking up any significant space. When I saw that, I said, you know what, maybe we can do this. I have a friend who's in the metals business. And he thought it was kind of a joke and it would be, you know, okay, this would be cute. We'll do Larry a favor and, and, and make a few of these. Uh, we originally tried to make a black anodized plate with a stainless steel bolt in it. And what happened was when we went to anodize it, you know what happened? The, the steel bolt melted. Oh, really? Anodization, yeah, anodization fluid will melt will melt any ferrous metal. That's my be best of my understanding. And I actually have some photos of the first ones that came out. It was, oh my God, we couldn't believe this. And the manufacturer said to me, by the way, you know, we happen to use titanium for the tongues that are used to soak uh, the uh, object in the anodization solution because titanium uh, will not really anodize or melt uh, in there. You have to use a different process to anodize titanium. So I said, well, why don't we use a titanium bolt? He said, well, it's expensive. I said, well, we're making a quality product. So let's find out about titanium. And we did produce the titanium bolts. They figured out a way to do it. So there's absolutely no protrusion at the bottom of the plate from where the titanium bolt is, is placed. And it's, it's actually uh, screwed in and welded in place and then smoothly covered over and polished. So you have a totally smooth bottom to the platypod. You cannot see or access that bolt, but that bolt also stays in place so that you could strap this onto a tree and not have to re-access that bolt from the back. You need no tools. You simply spin your tripod uh, ball head onto this. So. That was the birth of the platypod. We went to several conventions. We presented this. People loved it. But we got a lot of suggestions from customers, and it evolved. And we've now had, uh, I think, four iterations of the actual platypod plate and several accessories uh, built onto it. And uh, the, 
it's you know it's similar to the story of how the grip developed if there was a need and we wanted to fill those needs and i wanted to do it in ways that were different and better than what everyone else is doing and we've got several patents on that i think we have six going on seven patents now on our products and i'm very proud of those what makes your products uh, really stand out from the rest is also the fact that they're so innovative. Like, you know, take, for instance, the platter ball is a good example. You know, the platter ball, which I have to have the elite here, um, it's it's essentially it's a tripod head. And of course, there are many tripod heads available um, at the moment, but, but really nothing that is quite like this. I think the most remarkable thing about the platter pod is, is really the, the way that you tighten and loosen these just by pushing some buttons and by literally like, you know, you're increasing or decreasing pressure by pumping this thing up or, or down, which in itself is a mechanism that I've never come across in conjunction with any tripod head. Because normally, you know, you you you, you twist levers or, you know, it's it's usually it's a pain in the neck most of the time, you know. Um, but this is so clever. How did you, how, I mean, how does anybody come up with a concept like this? So the closest thing to this would have been a pistol grip um, head and there are other companies that do make those. The problem with the pris the pistol grip heads is it's either loose or it's tight. There's no real in between. And generally, from when you reposition it to when you release, because you 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 grab the the pistol grip to tight to release it, you release the pistol grip to tighten it. From those two different points, usually there's a shift in the composition. So for many applications, that doesn't work very well. With the plottable, there is no shift. So what made me want to come up with this? I do a lot of, we have a large family, I do a lot of children's portraiture. And when you're doing young children, you've got about 90 seconds from the time you bring the child into the scene until you're able to get your, uh, your photo. Because especially the one and two-year-olds, within two minutes, they're crying or just have lost all interest and you've blown your chance. So you need a way to position quickly. And I find that I need a tripod to do this on because especially if you're doing a large family with five, 10, 15 kids, or if you're doing uh, school uh, images of younger grades, these kids are gonna be moving around and you are going to have to head swap in Photoshop and obviously beyond the scope of this to discuss how to do that, but uh, that's you know, certainly available uh, on, uh, on YouTube and other, uh, other sites. So you need a tripod and you need a steadily, positioned, uh, a steadily positioned camera. So the problem I found with other ball heads is generally there'd be three knobs on it. One to, to tighten panning, one to adjust tension, and then one to release the ball head. And very often in the process of using it, you're fumbling trying to figure out which one is which. And when you're in a hurry, you really don't have that option. That was issue number one. Issue number two was most ball heads, almost all ball heads with a rare exception, have their panning at the base of the ball head. Think about it. That's where the swivel, that's where the swivel is for the panning function. If the base of the ball head is up at an angle, if it's not perfectly level, say because you're on an uneven surface and your tripod's not level, well, you can spend time trying to level the tripod first, then put the ball head on the tripod, then set everything up, 
to take your to take your image and yes you'll get an even pan but if the legs are not level or you don't want to have to go through that trouble what's going to happen is your camera is going to angle up and then down as you're panning what we decided to do was use a design where the padding is at the top. And again, it's a rare design. You'll find it on very, very few uh, ball heads. Now, when you have the padding at the top and the base is attached to the ball, all the controls are above that, you no longer have that issue. Now, if the base, and again, I'm showing this for the, uh, for the video audience, if the base is grossly off-center, as long as the top is leveled, you're going to get a level pan all the way through. Oh, let's just show that here. All the way through as you go across. Okay, so that was problem number two that we solved. Having knobs protruding is another issue because it's uneven for packing into your camera bag and they may protrude and crush other items such as a you know, plastic encased uh, flash. Okay, that's a, a more minor issue. The last issue that we wanted to resolve is most ball heads have their bubble level at the top, and they're usually either obscured by the camera, or it's nighttime and you can't see them, or you just can't get the, quite the angle, or you need to turn your ball head to the side, in which case a bubble, a bubble level becomes fairly useless unless there's two separate, you know, vertical and a horizontal level, but even that can be an issue. So we built in yes. simply too high. Yeah. We built in the world's first LED electronic leveling indicator. And so now you simply, and it's not easy for me to do this on camera, just holding this in the air, but you simply level this using the indicator. And that indicator works in six different orientations, sideways, upside down, facing downward, facing the sky. It works in any, any of those directions. It's clearly visible daytime, nighttime, and it just works. So I think we resolved a lot of issues with the, uh, with the Platyball. It's an amazing tool. It holds up to 22 pounds. Uh, it does take a little bit of finger pressure. I do not recommend these for people with severe osteoarthritis because it does take a little bit of finger pressure. There you're going to have to find a different solution. But for just around everyone else, this is a tough ball head. It's a heavy duty piece. And we've tested it to uh, last through, I think, 150,000 actuations, which in the average uh, photographer's hand, a serious photographer's hand, should last anywhere from 20 to 50 years. The, uh, the warranty know, is three years. The warranty is three years on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I find, I find it easier to use this with my left hand. And I think this might be because oh, so, you know, I've been playing guitar for all my life. What do you press the what do you press the shutter button with? Well, so it's, it's just when, when I'm when I'm using the um the button. Oh no, you're using it with left hand. I'm sorry, that is correct. Yeah. You're supposed excuse me, I'm I'm I, yeah. I missed that. Yes, you're supposed to use it with your left hand because your right hand is on the shutter. Exactly, so yeah. and it is built it is built to go onto the onto the left hand. You could use it with the right, but then you'll have to move your hand. And this is a one hand operation because as you're holding the mechanism, you're holding the camera. So you don't have to have two hands on it to be able to uh, position properly. And it's super useful because uh, actually, you know, it speeds up your workflow sometimes uh, quite dramatically. Like a good example would be, um, you know, as you know, I shoot a lot of boxing matches and I, I, uh, I shoot a lot of uh, matchups before the match. Mm -hmm. So when, you know, 
uh, when the the blue and red corners get announced, and they basically you know the opponents are being matched up, and so it's the typical kind of boxing shot, you know, uh, where they face off against each other. Um, and of course, you've got people of different heights potentially, you know, uh, although they're usually very well matched, but sometimes you know you have uh, one set of opponents that are a little bit shorter, and the next set of opponents are a little bit taller, and so you're constantly moving your ball head around in order to adjust for that. Um, and with just about any other ball head, it becomes a real act. You know, it's it's just complicated. Um, it takes it takes more time than it needs to. But with the platter ball, this becomes an extension of your hand. I, but yeah. you know, there is a learning curve. It takes a little while to get used to it because it's a very different, very different uh, mechanism. We didn't mention the fact that it also happens to be ARCA compatible uh, at the top, so you can use any uh, ARCA compatible quick, quick release plate on this. Uh, but once you get used to it. It 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 becomes second nature. You really don't have to think about it. You just use it. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing. You really don't have to think about it. Um, if I compare that to um, a ball head I used to use before that, um, I guess we can mention it. The brand is a Manfrotto uh, ball head. Uh, it's, it's actually a very clever uh, ball head, but it's it frazzles my brain for years because it's got three levers and all the different things, and it's it just, you know, in the heat of battle, it becomes... Too too much for my little brain to uh, to work, you know. <laughs> so it's yep. you know you constantly you constantly moving the wrong lever basically, which is the problem with that. So, well, look, and it's the right problems. tool for the right job. I won't claim there are geared ball heads that people who need extreme p- precision <clears throat> need to make some very very fine adjustments. You know, those are they're expensive. A good uh, a good uh, geared ball head can cost anywhere from five hundred to fifteen hundred dollars, but. It's the right tool for the right job, but for general photography, for macro work, for all, all you know, for product shots, this is this is wonderful because it's just so easy to adjust. Yeah, and if it literally fits into your camera bag without a hitch, it's so easy to, to take around as well. Um, that's another thing that I like. You know, again, you know, I mentioned I went into town yesterday, and of course, for for those of you who've been to London before, you know that this this virtually. No matter where you where you go in London, you're really going to have to hop on the tube and take a train, and uh, so you know you're limited in the amount of stuff that you can take with you. Really, everything has to fit into your backpack. Um, and plus, there's so many places that won't let you take a tripod. So the that's, and they yeah. don't turn you away for a platypod. So you avoid the tripod police that way. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's always like I said earlier, this is always a good head turner. So that's what I experienced yesterday. With a lot of people looking at what we were doing, <laughs> because you know the. As you can imagine, especially in the main, um, you know, the main kind of tourism spots, there are a lot of photographers there. Um, a lot of people who know what they're doing because these sites are being photographed day in, day out. Um, and, uh, you know, there were a number of, of turned heads when, when we were there operating. So the, so the platypod gear, which is, you know, which is great. Always good talking point. I, I'm very much a, a follower. I, I, first of all, for teenagers, for, for young people looking to go into photography, there's two books that I believe are essential. And they're both uh, written by an author, Brian Peterson. Brian with a Y, Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N. And those two books are called Understanding Exposure and Learning to See Creatively. And I think those are two essential books for anyone starting out into photography. And one thing that I was very much inspired by in reading Brian's books is he talks about walking around the object, looking at your subject from different viewpoints. And I know Rick Salmon uh, often talks about this as use your 
use your uh, camera almost like a drone or a helicopter, go up, go down, different angles, and try to get a shot that is different from everyone else's. I think uh, Dave Williams likes to call this the Eiffel Tower effect, where everybody's images of the Eiffel Tower look practically the same. And I've employed that. I tried to really look at things differently. And this is one wonderful benefit of the platypod. First of all, starting off in low angles and then moving into tight spaces, maybe framing your picture with a, with a, a tree around it or a window uh, around it or a uh, door opening or a cave opening around it to give some framing to that image. This is something that Platypod allows you to do, which is not so easy to do in other, in other ways. I still remember being in the Caribbean once in my wife. It's the only time we, that, that we went on vacation to the Caribbean. And there was a beautiful composition with a palm tree, if you can imagine this, a palm tree wrapping right over the moon. And in the background, was a uh, outjutting of the island into the ocean with another palm tree in the background. And to get everything composed just right, the only place to get this image was on top of a three-foot-tall boulder. I couldn't fit my tripod on there. There was just no way I tried. I had a tripod with me. I couldn't fit it on that, on that boulder. I tried taking a sweater and positioning it, I put the camera on it. You had to take a few images because you would have to stack the, uh, the exposures to be able to expose for the moon, to be able to expose for the island, for the sky. So it would have, happened, I would have had to combine together several exposures. When I got back to my hotel room, I looked at the images. They were all blurry. Had I had a platypod to put onto that boulder, I would have nailed that image. No question about it. I would have... I would have set it off, set off each image with a timer. I didn't have a cable release with me, but using a delay timer, there would have been no uh, shutter shake, and I would have gotten that shot. Platypod often allows you to get shots that you would have missed otherwise, especially when you mention the tripod police. If you go into a public place, a church, uh, or a museum, they won't allow you to bring a tripod in there, and often you need to obtain long exposures, or if you want to do a time lapse like you were discussing, Platypod allows you to do that because you, know, you can just place it on the ground, the guards will come up, they'll look, they don't know what it is and they won't bother you. But don't take out a shutter release, a cable release. <laughs> Scott Kelby has said, oh, you have a cable release, you're a professional photographer, <laughs> so be careful, <laughs> be careful with that. But you, know, you can literally strap this onto a light pole or a tree and do a very nice, uh, do a very nice time lapse uh, with it, which you can't do that with a tripod. And by putting it high up on a tree, the public will not touch your camera. Nobody's going to even know that it's there. Whereas if you have a tripod out, that becomes a tripping hazard uh, for the for the public. So uh, some things that will really, I think, this gets you to. Think differently about your compositions. It gets you to photograph differently. And I would vouch that it will actually improve your photography because you will be thinking about the images more. And which a general a tripod gets you to do. It gets you to take your time to slow down 
and compose more carefully. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned one of your images. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about your photography because um, your portfolio in itself is absolutely stunning. And I know we've, uh, we've picked out a number of shots that, we, that we're going to discuss in a second. Um, let's start with the first one. So the first shot is an image of, again, of a mutual friend of ours, Pete. Um, and it was shot in front of Shakespeare's birth house. So there's quite a background story to this, to this image. And by the way, uh, for those of you who are listening on audio, you can access these image by going to the Platypod website at platypod.com and just uh, use the drop-down menu, click on blog, and if you type in the word Shakespeare, <laughs> you will find this article showed uh, that's called, I think, Shakespeare and Spandex, The Perfect Pair. So the background story is, uh, Kirsten, we were together at, uh, at the photography show, TPS, in, um, in Birmingham, and this was two years ago. Uh, as it turns out, uh, my, my wife was gravely ill. She had to have surgery done and uh, it was a very serious time. It was also uh, the day of Queen Elizabeth's funeral. So the show was shut down for that day. And Dave Williams saw that I was, in, <laughs> I was not in the best of ways and he wanted to cheer me up. And he said, come, let's take a ride in the van, which was called Café Fernway, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, has since, he lived in that van for two years. It's since been disassembled and, and I think sold. But we went for a ride to Stratford-upon-Avon and our friend Peter Treadway, who is an avid bicyclist, built his own carbon fiber bicycle. I think Peter said it weighed under two pounds, five pounds. It was very, very, very lightweight uh, bicycle. And he drove, he rode that bike 25 kilometers from Birmingham over to Stratford-upon-Avon and met us there. So Dave and I are walking around the plaza, which was absolutely empty because everyone was home because of the Queen's funeral that day. And I said, okay, there's a very interesting house. I think I want to take some pictures of that. And I started shooting some pictures. And in comes Peter, who finally, you know, met us there. And I'm looking at this old, beautiful British house. And I see Peter in his brightly colored spandex outfit <laughs> with red socks and red gloves. And I said, hmm, now I know how to make how to avoid the Eiffel Tower effect and make this old home look more interesting. So I set my camera on the ground on a platypod extreme using a platyball, getting a nice low angle, which made everything, because when you're shooting from a lower angle, especially in sports shot, sports images, the, the character looks more bold from that, from that low angle. And we had Peter start to drive his bike back and forth and back and forth. And I was playing with shutter speeds to see where I could get just the right shutter speed to get a little bit of motion blur in Peter and the bicycle, but have everything still be quite recognizable. So we did this back and forth. It turns out the best shutter speed was 1 160th of a second and got just the beautiful bit of blur. And I set the camera on a, a continuous uh, rapid fire and one of the images had Peter's head and helmet positioned perfectly 
under the angled eaves of this home. And we finished. I knew I had gotten the shot. I said, Dave, that's it. Okay, so now where's Shakespeare's home? <laughs> and Dave says to me, you just shot a picture of it. I said, oh, that's why that was so interesting. So very cute story. And I got an image which I've uh, printed up to, uh, I think it was about 16 by uh, 20 uh, image. It's now hanging in my, uh, in my clinic and uh, the patients are getting to enjoy that, uh, that shot. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I remember that day. I actually remember that day very well because uh, I remember talking to to Pete just before he set off to cycle to Stratford, uh, to Stratford up in Avon. Um, from Birmingham, that's no mean feat. You know, and I remember saying to him, like, well, you, you're cycling you're on your bike. You're cycling all the way from Birmingham. He said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Then I cycled back afterwards. I'm like, okay. Of course, a little bit later, a few months later, he, um, he actually cycled from London um, through to Paris on his bike. Um, wow. Yeah. So that was, uh, that went over, I think he said that was a thing. Over the channel. Yeah. They went on the ferry. Um, so, oh, okay. and, I, and I remember Dave, uh, Dave and the van were the support vehicle for it. So they basically left, um, Essex, which is actually North of London. So really you would have to go, you know, uh, through London itself and then to the South coast and then across the channel wow. and then all the way down to Paris. So that, you know, it blows my mind even more. It's, you know, my fitness levels are not anywhere close to that. <laughs> can, can, one, can one ride a bike in, in the channel or no? Um, no, you can't. You basically, there is, so there's really only two ways that you can get across. Uh, one is by ferry, you know, the traditional way. And then the channel tunnel is really a train. So there's two different types of trains that run through the uh -huh. channel tunnel. One is a passenger train. Like you, you get on, at, I don't even know what, but it leaves now from King's Cross or Houston or something like that. And then, you know, it takes you through the tunnel onto Paris. Uh, and the other one is a, is a train that you drive on with your car and you actually stay seated in your uh, car. So you okay, but train. you can't actually drive through. The, I, I was under the false impression. So you can't actually drive through the... Uh, no, you can't through drive through. You, have to, you, you basically drive your car or your van or your truck onto, onto the, the train. This, onto this train. It's, a very, it's very Star Wars, I have to say. I mean, it's, very, it's a little bit surreal because you remain seated inside of your car. There's nowhere to go. I mean, there's, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a restroom, but that's about it. There's no... There's nothing. There's no like, you know, facilities or anything. So you just stay seated in your car. Um, it takes a, I think, twenty minutes, and you come out the other end, and you wow. drive literally. You drive off the train, um, in your car. You drive off the platform, and you're on the highway. So wow, that's great. It's super easy. Um, yeah, it makes. And I've you know I've used the channel tunnel for the last uh, 10, 15 years or something, because I thought it was so practical. You know, you literally don't waste any time. You drive on a train, you know, you listen to some music, 20 minutes later, you're in France. Amazing. Um, wow. Until last, this summer just gone, where uh, my youngest daughter and I drove um, from London to the south of Germany. And, and uh, I booked the ferry for the first time in a long time. And I have to say, although that takes, you know, the ferry takes about two hours, 90 minutes to two hours, roughly. So it's, mm. it's a, you know, bigger chunk of time. Um, but it broke up the journey so nicely that I thought like, you know, I'm going to have to do this in the future. It's actually quite nice. You know, you drive, then you sit on a boat, you enjoy the waves, you know, you get to chill out, have a coffee, relax, and then you carry on on your, on your way. So actually, you know, 
pros and cons. So, you know, for, for any of you listeners or viewers, you know, if you ever um, decide to travel by by land over to the UK, then I highly recommend it. It's, it's definitely worth doing. Anyway, so let's let's move on to the next photo um, that we wanted to discuss, and that's it's a food a food photo of an omelette. Uh, give us a background on that image. So again, if people want to refer to this image, they can go to the uh, Platypod website, platypod.com, and uh, go into uh, just drop down blogs, and then search the word cheese. And you'll find the image of the uh, of the omelet. So this was an image that I shot in preparation for a Kelby One presentation. And I love egg omelets. I love cheese omelets. I have a special recipe that involves uh, something called everything but the bagel. It's the shake that they put on a bagel with some garlic and seeds and stuff like that. Makes it very very yummy. And we used some cheddar and American cheese. And by the way, here's a tip. If you combine cheddar cheese and American cheese, you get a very, very creamy combination to that. It makes an excellent grilled cheese sandwich and an excellent omelet. So I laid out this omelet. I think you can see the setup that we use. It was rather complex. Now, to me, food photography is one of the most fascinating areas in photography worth studying, worth practicing on. Probably next to that would be toy photography because you really learn a lot about composition, about lighting, about preparation of your subjects through these two genres, but I think even more so with food photography. What you need is an interesting background, you certainly need an interesting main subject, and it's got to be clear in your photography what the main subject is. And in this image, you'll see that the main subject was a bite of bite-sized portion of the omelet at the end of a golden fork. That fork, by the way, was, was a cheap plastic fork that I bought a pack of 20 of those, but it looks like beautiful gold metal. Um, then comes the lighting and preparation. So you have to have a highlight light on the main subject. You need that light either to come from the side or from behind the subject, which makes the food look most interesting. But then you're going to run into problems with shadows, dark shadows in the front. So you're going to need a reflector to reflect back the light. You can use either a mirror or a white bounce card to reflect back. Then the issue with the metal fork is if you don't properly light the fork, and when you're lighting a metal object, all you see is the, whatever the metal is reflecting. So if there's nothing coming off that object, reflecting on it, you're going to get a black metal object, which looks very uninteresting. So you need to have generally a white card or a light source itself, a large light source itself, reflecting off that metal object. To accomplish this image, I wanted everything done on a tabletop. So in setting up, it took me about two hours to set up the shot. Instead of the omelet, which would have gone totally dry and crinkled, um, I used, I believe it was a yellow squash, uh, which was about the same size and and, and length of the uh, and shape of the uh, omelet, and I put that on the uh, on the 
plate, and then set up my lights. So to hold the fork, I needed to use a platypod with some goosenecks and a clamp, and that held the fork. And I had a, just a dummy fork sitting there for while during the setup. To reflect light off the fork, I had needed a large card with light being bounced off that card. So I used another set of goosenecks and some elbows and clamps to hold all of that up. Then something had to hold the camera in position. And I had another platypod with our platypod handle, which is an extender. And I was able to use, uh, use a second handle with a pivot in between, which was provided by a, um, a platyball. And that held the camera in just at the right angle. I wanted the camera two to three inches from that bite, from that fork, because the feeling I wanted to convey to the viewer is this is a bit of food which you're about to put right into your mouth, which the goal of food photography is to produce an image that makes your mouth water, that makes you crave that food. Now, when you're setting up a camera like that on a platypod on a table, it's a good idea to clamp the platypod or to sandbag or weight the, the platypod down onto the table so that there's no chance of it tipping over. And I think that's, that's very important. But if you look at this blog post and you look at this image, I think you'll learn quite a bit about setting up the image. Kirsten, do you have any questions about that? Yeah, first of all, the um, if you if you go to the blog, and of course, uh, just be reminded that all of the links that we're talking about here, um, you can find those in the description of this podcast um, or in the YouTube description. Uh, and if you you know if you want to um, have a look at those images whilst we're talking about them. In the video version over on YouTube, uh, I'll be flying these images in as we talk about them, so you can reference them straight away. But um, the interesting thing about the blog also is is that there are some behind-the-scenes images of the actual setup in there as well, so you can actually see what the setup looked like at the time of shooting. Now, I've got some a little bit of experience with, with food photography, um, and the thing about food photography that makes it so interesting to me is um, is of course that you're going to be really precise with the lighting and the setup and you're going to make a lot of very definitive decisions uh, very specific decisions as far as depth of field is concerned and all the rest of it um, but at the same time your subject keeps forever changing <laughs> which is another thing that you've got to handle of course in, in toy photography it's such you don't have that issue because you know you prep the subject and once it's done, it is done and it will stay in right. shape, you know, in the same shape, the same in, in product. It decays, no borders, it decays. <laughs> it's you know, it's another thing where your subject keeps like, you know, deteriorating and like uh, it's uh, it's a real thing. How did you how did you get that omelet to look like that? Did you just like literally get it out of the out of the frying pan? Yeah, into the, <laughs> the yeah because you can't, there's almost no other way to do it. I. I had everything set up, everything in place, the shutter ready to be clicked. I went up and I, I to the kitchen. I made the omelet, and yeah, I I brought it down. I placed it carefully on the dish, which was already set up with all the garnish and there were some cherry tomatoes and all that. And you know, I I placed it on the fork. I think we had the whole thing done within five minutes of the uh of the food being uh being complete for other foods there are some tricks you know spraying on water or glycerin and things like that or oil to keep the food looking fresh 
but with this, we had to work very, very quickly uh, to get it to get it just right. I want to emphasize something else. Yes, everyone can look at my setup, but there is no, <laughs> excuse the term, cookbook setup to do your food photography with. I'm sorry, that was a bad pun. Um, but you need to know what tools you have. And then the beauty and the fun part of food photography is you are actively solving a puzzle. You're positioning the lights to your taste, to your interest, to make it look right for you. So just know what tools you have at your disposal, know what they can do. Sometimes you may need cards to reflect light. Here I used also a mirror to reflect light. Sometimes you may need cards to block light from certain areas because if the back of the plate is too highly lit and is overcoming the, the main subject, which is the bite, that's no good either. You, you want to make the brightest object the point of interest. I will recommend two wonderful books on food photography. One is by Andrew Scrivani, S-C-R-I-V-A-N-I. I believe the, the, the book is called the, that, that Photo Makes Me Hungry. Uh, on food photography. Wonderful book, and these are not expensive books. The other one is by Joe Glida, G-L-Y-D-A, uh, which is called Food Photography. And I think between these two books, you'll get a lot of tips and tricks on how to make your food look absolutely scrumptious. You'll want to take a bite of the page when when you see. And then these these make some very nice uh, tabletop uh, uh, books for your for your coffee table. Um, this this also this one book I can recommend uh, by Joni Simon called uh, Picture Perfect Food, which is also if you've you know if um, if you've never really dabbled in food photography and you, you're thinking oh this might be something that I might enjoy getting into that's a great book you know f that really takes you from beginner level through to some really quite complex um, shots. I have to say though um, I've spoken to Joni before um, and I know she's a, she's an excellent chef so. You know, her photography is stellar, but she also knows how to present the food really, really well. That's true. That, listen, <laughs> we have to admit one thing. Listen, I did this one myself, but it probably could have benefited from someone known as a food stylist. And if you're going to do this professionally, there are people specially trained in arranging the food, in making it look fresh, uh, and making it look very, very uh, ready to eat, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. and very appealing. So if you're going to do this professionally, yes, learn to do this on your own. But once you go out to do a job, a food stylist is something that uh, may be very, very worthwhile to get your final uh, subject look amazing. It's, it's a very interesting subject. Um, you know, again, you compared it to toy photography earlier. And I think that's, that's a really valid comparison because you're literally creating a scene you know, a, a backdrop um, and a sort of a situation for that food to be presented in. Um, let me, let uh, me mention three, three toy photographers to look up on Instagram. I think you can learn a lot from them. One is Mitchell Wu, W-U. Uh, Mitchell's very talented at making sort of comical scenes and using a lot of special effects, explosions, fires, uh, mists. Uh, look up Jesse Fireisen, and no, I'm not going to spell Fireisen because I think I'm going to mess it up. But uh, you can find, if you just look up Jesse on our website, you will find his uh, several blog posts from him. And also Dave DeBearmaker, uh, who does some wonderful 
uh, wonderful uh, toy shots also. So it's a, another genre, I think, for those of you who are starting out into photography and really want to learn about composition and lighting. Uh, there are very easy ways to do, even on a cloudy day in your basement, and it's so so easy. It's very satisfying once you get an image that you really love. And especially, uh, you mentioned uh, Jesse Fires and Dave Tiberik. In fact, Dave Tiberik has just uh, just recently uh, brought out his own book on the the subject of um, of toy photography, which um, he's been a guest on the show before. I'm sure I will have him back to talk about his book. Um, I'm super interested in uh, getting my hands onto a copy because, um, again, it's, it's something I love. Toy photography is, is such an interesting thing, again, because you're creating a set, you know, to place your, your main subject in. And anybody who's been listening or has been following this podcast for a while knows that I just love set building. That's, I love doing that. I spent hours doing it. It's so much fun. Um, in fact, you know, very often it's it's the case, you know, again, watching food photography, for example, um, that you spend hours building the set and the actual shoot is over in 10 minutes. You know, but that's a lot of, it's a very front-loaded process, you know, where you spend a lot of time refining everything, you know, the set, all the different props, then you're lighting it, you know, you're putting into, into CD making the food look good. And I'll, I'll give you a little, another little trip. I, this, this is something I did with Jesse Fireisen once. I gave him a challenge and that is build a set with kitchen items, especially when you're doing futuristic toy photography, using grills, using... Uh, cheese graters, uh, using all kinds of different utensils, you sometimes can produce some very interesting set backgrounds for your uh, subjects right out of your kitchen. And you can take it to the nth degree uh, with, with with that. You know, for instance, Dave DeBerrick, he he actually three D prints uh, parts of the of the uh, of the sets that he builds. It's it's completely beyond me how you can get into that that level of detail. You know, he prints, uh, he 3D prints bits like like bricks or rocks, and he builds these like medieval walls, and he hand paints everything. And then he 3D prints the main subject, like the dragon or whatever it may be that he's photographing as well. It's just, it's completely beyond me. His photography is stellar, but the amount of effort that goes into the the, the nitty gritty and detail of it and actually creating the subject in the first place is is absolutely, again, totally beyond me. I'm really looking forward to his book because... I'm hoping for some secrets in a book. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. that being said, actually, if you, you know, if you are, um, if you, if you're sort of thinking that maybe dabbling with the subject of toy photography in particular, it might be something that interests you. And um, again, um, head over to the Platypod channel, uh, to the YouTube channel, um, where I, uh, I made a tutorial video on some basic toy photography and some really clever ideas as to how you can quite easily create some really superb backgrounds. And also, you know, it, it contains a number of tips on how to light your, your action figure, for example. So, you know, do the flavor, uh, head over to the Platypod YouTube channel, check that out. Um, and say, you know, give it a like or two. Of course, what's to there? Why not? Anyway. Yes, and, yeah. and, and subscribe to over there. And you'll, you'll get, I think we're putting out a new video every week. So uh, people will learn a lot of things from what they're seeing on the uh, Platypod channel, both from you, uh, Kirsten, and from our friend Larry Becker, who also is interviewing some wonderful photographers and showing their images. And these are all very short videos, five to 10 minutes each. It won't take up a lot of your time, but I guarantee you, you will learn some things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, let's move on to your third image, which is uh, which is an image of the Washington Bridge, but it's 
a very different image of the of the Washington Bridge. Um, an image, or let's say an angle, that you don't really see very often. And again, for those YouTube viewers that have been flying it in, Larry, give us the, the lowdown on that particular image. So again, I think every great every great photo has a little bit of a story to it, and uh, and it'd be nice if we could print these stories and put them on a plaque under each photo. But uh, no one's going to read the plaque. But I I love telling the stories. Again, if you go to the blog post uh, on our on our uh, Platypod channel and just search G W Bridge or just the word bridge, you'll find you'll find this image. So my wife and I have been to the Palisades. Many times, the Palisades, if you don't know, is these huge cliffs that overlook the Hudson River from the New Jersey side of the river. Uh, it's a state park, a New Jersey state park. And normally you drive on a uh, on a parkway that is at the upper level and you're looking way down on the uh, onto the um, uh, Hudson River. We discovered that there is a lower level too, which has its own parks. And there is one place that you can go to where you can actually walk right under the center of the George Washington Bridge. And again, I like to get images that are a little bit different from everyone else's image. And I kind of pre-visualize what I wanted and I got better than, than I was asking for. So I wanted a very symmetrical, wide-angle view of the underbelly of the bridge with the tower visible, with converging lines. I wanted to really show how you could maximize your perspectives, maximize the interest and the diagonal lines that you could produce in a composition like this. So we walked under there. It was a stormy day. And luckily, there was no rain at that moment. But about 20 minutes later, it was pouring and a driven rain. So even standing under the bridge, you, you would get kind of wet. But for this time of this image, I set the camera down on the ground on a platypod. Now, I tried it from a little bit higher. And you'll be able to see this in the article. When you go a little bit higher, you lose in the composition because you get distracting elements from the New York side. There's a, there are housing projects and all that. When you set the camera down on the ground, there is a cross beam, a cross girder, which hides all the distractions in the background, yet doesn't mess up your image because it's part of the structure. It looks like it belongs there. And the real gem is way off in the distance, you can see a little red lighthouse at the base of the New York Tower of the GW Bridge. Uh, there was actually once a children's book written about this called The Little Red Lighthouse. And using the setup that we got, I was able to get perfect symmetry. Now, yes, we all know about rules of thirds and all that, but sometimes you have an image which calls for perfect symmetry. And I was able to line up, looking at the bolts on the cross girder, I was able to line up getting the top of the bridge, the roadway lined up perfectly with the center of those bolts. So the image is almost perfectly symmetrical. And then you get converging lines of the tower. You get these converging downward lines of the roadway disappearing almost into infinity 
and you have clouds pointing downward towards the entire structure. And because the camera was held on a tripod, you can zoom in on this image and see almost every single bolt and rivet on the structure, on the girders of the bridge itself. And I, again, I printed this up very, very large, and it, it just looks, it looks amazing, I think, because of that whole thing. Again, the point is, look at things from different angles, from different heights, and you will come up with an image that is different from everyone else's. And again, on the block, as you mentioned, there's another image um, with the camera just in a slightly more elevated position. You can immediately see the difference of yeah. that viewpoint makes. So, you know, getting close to the ground in this instant um, just made all the difference, you know, between like an average shot and, and a shot that's really 15, 20 inches made all the difference into of this being successful or not successful. And of course, you know, there are tripods that, that allow you to get relatively close to the ground, but uh, from my own experience, it's it's a complicated procedure. Um, you know, and I, ca I can't overstate how simple this whole thing is by using a platypod, you know, this is, it's... Correct, and this was a, this was a heavy camera. This was a Nikon D850 with a, a the old heavy bulbous Nikon uh, 14 to 24 millimeter uh, ultra wide uh, telephoto, uh, ultra wide lens. And uh, yeah, you needed a good stable platform uh, for this. Yes, solid lens. In fact, um, as you can't see it, but it's the, the very lens right behind me <laughs> on the shelf up there. It's a beautiful lens. Works great yeah. for, for shots like that. Incredible, incredible sharpness. Unbelievable sharpness for a wide angle. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's really, it's, it's a perfect, like 40 millimeters on a full frame. It's actually, it's, it's really perfect because we're not really quite into the kind of fisheye territory, but we're still getting a lot of character with that super wide at that. Um, and of course, right. you can then, you know, you can then um, draw that in and out. The minute you get to the the twenty four millimeter end of that lens, it turns more of a it you know, turns into more of a standard twenty four mm -hmm. at the white at the white side. So you know, you, you can make it as extreme as you want, but it's it's a really fun lens to play with um, in in lots of different situations. Listen, if I were starting today, I would go mirrorless, but. Now, having invested in these uh, in these Nikon or you say Nikon lenses, I, I haven't been able to make the transition yet. I still I'm I'm still grabbing on to what I to what I have because I love I love the uh, the the set that I have at this point. Yeah, and uh, you know I still use the same lens. I mean, I transitioned to mirrorless um, maybe a year and a half ago, and you know I'm still using the old you know the old lenses with a converter, which yeah, means perfectly fine. Yeah, and it really? was absolutely perfectly fine. The one lens that I would, um, I would move on to the the latest mirrorless version is the twenty four seventy because the twenty four seventy is really the workhorse lens for me. That's on my camera most of the time. I do a lot of video with that lens, um, and I'm missing the sort of modernized new features that the new version of that lens gives you, like you know the super smooth zoom, for example, or you know the the way that it just hops into focus, you know, very smoothly, which is really useful for video. You know, um, there's definitely a reason for me to upgrade at some point. That's the, you know, but these lenses are expensive. So, you know, as long as you can make use of them with a converter, they work absolutely fine. Um, Larry, if you were to give 
people uh, some tips um, about landmarks in New York City to photograph to get some amazing shots. What, what would be your secret tips for that? Right now, I would take I would just take a walk down the west side of Manhattan. Um, first of all, start off with the. Have you heard of the High Line? Do you know what that is? Uh, I have heard. I can I have heard of it. The High Line is a is a pedestrian walkway, basically ma now made for for tourists. It, I don't know. It's, it started up about 15, 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more, and it's beautifully decorated with all kinds of flora and fauna. Uh, but it's about a mile long. You can walk up and down there. You'll meet people from all over the world and you'll get a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on on the west side of Manhattan. There is a lot of fascinating architecture. There, of course, is, uh, is the, uh, the vessel. The vessel is a beehive-like structure that serves no purpose except for being a point of interest and these stairways that you can walk up and down. Now, for a while... Uh, I think the vessel was closed because there were sadly a number of suicides uh, that happened from uh, from that. But between that and there is uh, a new building called the Edge, which has a balcony with a glass bottom that you can shoot down on. I think you'll find some fascinating buildings and uh, fascinating architecture uh, to look at. Of course, you can shoot images of the Empire State Building. But uh, gosh, Manhattan has so many, so many interesting things to look at. Yeah, so I remember the last time I've I went to Manhattan was maybe two thousand five. I would have thought so. You know, I'm I'm definitely I'm planning on coming back um, in twenty twenty five. Twenty years later, Larry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show um, again. I'm sure you know it would would have been the last time. We'll have you back again in the not too distant future. Now we've talked about the grip um, and the planet part early on um, in this episode. Uh, but then there's also, of course, the handle that uh, that you released a little while ago, which is essentially an extension, what would you call it? It's an extension pole, an extender for your camera. It's actually multi-level extender. So this can be diminished to a three-inch riser, which you can place right on the platypod. Okay, this is great for actually for food photography. This gets you just to a beautiful angle to be able to get it close to a plate of food. Or the base size of it is as a six and a half inch riser. Let's get that on there. There we go. All right, six and a half inch riser. And then simply with a quarter twist of a little ring, you can go up to 10 and a half inches. Then you can mount a camera directly on this using a disc adapter from Platypod. Or you can put a ball head on top of it, or you can now put the grip on top of it. And if you place all of this on a platypod extreme, you now have a one-piece unit that you can place on a table and mount your mount your phone on here and if you're a vlogger and want to become an influencer you simply take this you take your phone and either in portrait mode or in landscape mode 
Now you have a camera that's at eye height and you can vlog and then you can take the entire structure, either set it on your table or just carry it around with you. You can set it down uh, on, a, uh, on a rock or uh, on a tree stump or on a table, anywhere and be able to do some vlogging. So we call this the Influencer Smart Start Kit. It is available at platypod.com. And for your viewers, Kirsten, we have a promo code that is time limited, but it should be up there for at least a few weeks. And that is SS20, SS Samuel Samuel 20, no spaces. And I'm sorry, SS30, excuse me, I take that back, SS30, and you will get $30 off the already uh, low price of $199. Uh, you'll get uh, $30 off the Smart Start Kit, and that can be combined with other items on our, uh, in our offerings, and you can save even more money with our Instant Loyalty Rebates program. So look all that up on platypod.com. Absolutely, and again, you can find all the links in the description. Again, that's it's a you know it's it's incredible value because you know you get you be getting the uh, the Platypod Extreme, the handle, and the grip all in one kit. Uh, it's so flexible; you'd be able to, to use it in so many different um, situations. Yeah, fantastic. You find it you find it all in the description, um, or of course you can hop, hop over to platypod.com, um, and it'll all be there for you right there. Um, Larry, it's been fantastic having you on the show again. Um, hopefully, it's not going to be another two years until you're back. I'm sure we'll have you on the show before that. <laughs> 100%. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm planning... Up, some, other, some other new items, we'll see. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's that's exactly, that is my next question. What is next for Platypod? Any secret well, plans to, you can tell us about? Most I can't, most I can't talk about yet because they're still in development. But one I can talk about, and that is... Uh, many of you have been asking for retractable feet to go on the spikes here. Uh, very often you're using these upside down. You don't want to scratch your finger and you'd like to have a rubber cap on here. Now we do sell these with rubber caps in place, but they're, they're, they're kind of flimsy and I'm not crazy about them. So we are developing retractable uh, feet that will go on to this sharp end. It'll still fit onto the platypod extreme and expect to see that over the next few months and other things we're working out if you want to know just go to platypod.com and sign up for our email list where you'll be notified of discounts you'll be notified of our weekly video releases and including kirsten lutz's uh videos that come out uh, to practically every other week and uh you'll certainly hear about new products if you're signed up with the other 11,000 people who are on our email list. And you'll also get our monthly newsletter, which highlights some very interesting topics. We have three photographers who are highlighted there and you'll see their techniques and their images and hopefully learn something. Absolutely. And you know, you mentioned it, there's, there's always some kind of special offer or some, some kind of deal going on um, on the platypod.com website. Definitely worth checking out and make sure you get to newsletters so you can take full advantage of all of those. Um, 
Again, Larry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being our special guest this week on the Planet Sh- uh, Podcast. I was going to say on the Camera Shake Podcast. Okay, folks, that's it for today. It was awesome having Larry on the show again. Always great to catch up. Uh, and as always, before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you like. Check out episode 186, where I go through some awesome tips on how to elevate your photography in 2024. I'm sure you love it. Now, if you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camashake to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. It really does mean the world to us. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully fleshed video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camashake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you're already on YouTube, well, then drop us a comment, hit the like button, ring that bell, and share with your friends. Your engagement helps us reach a wider audience all over the world. Thank you for listening and watching. And remember, a new episode drops every Thursday, so mark that in your calendars. Until next time, keep shaking things up in the world of photography. See you next Thursday. Bye.